Hello, and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Rethinking Sex, Brain and Gender, Beyond the Binary, by Dr. Daphne Joel, and first broadcast live on the 11th of August, 2022. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online is still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you. Am I, am I okay? Am I on? Yeah, okay. So it's, I'm glad not to see you, but I, I wish I could, but I'm glad to be here uh, and uh, to talk to you today about rethinking sex, brain and gender. I want to say a few words about myself. I've been a neuroscientist for over 25 years now, and only during the past decade or so, I started studying questions related to sex and brain. Before that, I was doing completely different things, studying uh, the neural substrates of obsessive compulsive disorder, schizophrenia, etc. And I got to this area quite by accident. A colleague of mine retired, and she was uh, teaching for many years a course called The Psychology of Gender. And when she retired, she asked me to replace her. And, uh, and I decided that I will. And for a year, I sat at home and read a lot of articles and books about gender. And as a neuroscientist, I was, of course, interested in the relations between sex and the brain. And as most of you, I was aware of uh, the idea that there are male brains and female brains. I heard about the book, The, the Female Brain, and later The Male Brain. I read the book uh, Men from Mars, Women from Venus. So I was familiar with this kind of uh, discussion or discourse around sex and the brain. And this is why I was surprised when I ran into a study quite by mistake or by chance that reported that sex differences in the rat brain can be opposite under different conditions. And I will tell you a little more about this study later. But this study completely transformed how I was thinking about sex and the brain and led me or opened for me a, very, a new path of uh, science or of research of the brain. Uh, and, and this is what I'm going to talk to you about today, about what I discovered in this decade of research since I ran into this study. So let's start and let's start with what I think all of you are familiar with, this model of how sex develops already in utero and how we develop and how it affects other systems. So we start from a difference at the level of the chromosomes, whether someone is XX or XY. This determines whether the gonads will develop into ovaries or testes, and this determines through the secretion of hormones the development of the genitalia into the male or female form. And for over 50 years now, the most uh, uh, common, or even I can say the dogma, of sex effects on the brain is that similarly to sex effects on the genitalia, these hormones, and to a lesser extent, the genes, sex-related genes, affect brain structure so that the brain it develops to either a female form or a male form. And this, of course, underlies the differences in behavior, perception, etc., between men and women, what I wrote here as women from Venus and men from Mars. So in this model, there is an emphasis on differences at the different levels. The differences are um, treated as if they are natural, that is derived from differences in genes and hormones. And, and this is where I come in, and the differences are believed to add up consistently to create two systems, a binary system. 
the sex binary, the gender binary. So I'm going to focus, focus about this last part of this scheme, the idea that differences add up consistently. And where did this idea come from? Very simple, I think. It came from the uh, finding or something that we all know that sex effects or sex differences in the genitalia almost always add up consistently with, within individuals to create one of two distinct systems, male genitalia or female genitalia. And what you can see here on the left, yeah, on the right, is a, a piece of art from a, an artist named Jamie McCartney, which showed the external genitalia of women. And on the left, we can see the external genitalia of male as I collected using Google images. So you can imagine the types of ads I get since. But the reason I brought these here is that we can see that not all humans or not all genitalia are the same. There are differences. Each person has some different, uh, different variation of genitalia. But it is very clear that genitalia almost always come in one of two distinct sets. So either a person has only female typical organs or only male typical organs. And it is quite rare that a baby is born with genitalia that are not clearly female or male, either because one or more genital organs are in the form intermediate between the female typical and the male typical, or because they have both male typical and female typical organs. And Usually, we do not label the, the genitalia of these babies as male or female, but intersex, um, dif differences in, um, in sex development, etc. So there are different names, and the names is, keep changing. This is quite a rare condition in humans. The, there is a lot of debate about the exact uh, percentage or ratio, but it is, of course, less than 1%. It is quite a lot of people, if you multiply by the number of people on Earth, but still, it's a relatively low percent in terms of a biological system. So most humans are born with either male or female genitalia. When we look at these images, it is quite clear why when scientists discovered sex differences in the brain, they assumed or they used the same logic of the genitalia to conceptualize or understand sex differences in the brain. And specifically, they assumed that sex effects on the brain add up consistently within each brain as they do in the genitalia, to create two types of brains, male brains and female brains. And I think an image that illustrates this idea very clearly is this uh, summary diagram from a study published about eight years ago. Um, and this group looked at, the, uh, at gender differences in the strengths of connections in the human brain. Altogether, they assessed over 9,000 connections in the human brain, and they found differences in, about, in several dozens. I don't know exactly how many because they didn't report this. But this summary diagram shows you all the connections in the upper panel that were stronger on average in men compared to women. And in the lower panel, all the connections that were stronger on average in women compared to men. Now, the color code is blue for intrahemispheric connections and orange for interhemispheric connections. When you look at these images, it seems that men from Mars, women from Venus, for sure, if not even for, from different galaxies, right? Men have blue brain, women have orange brain, you know, very, very different. But if we look carefully, we understand that they are using the logic of the genitalia when they describe their results. So they assume that just as in genitalia, what is typical of males is to have male typical genital organs, 
and what is typical of females is to have female typical genital organs, so too is the uh, situations in brain. So they talk about the upper panel as a representative of the typical male brain, assuming that what's typical of the brains of men is to have male typical features. And what would be typical of the brain of female or of women is to have female typical features. Now, actually, it sounds quite reasonable or logical, common sense even. Why not assume that what's typical of men is to have male typical features and what would be typical of women is to have female typical features? The reason to suspect that this is not the case in the brain is studies of the type that I mentioned shortly in the beginning. That there are evidence or there is evidence in animal studies that sex effects on the brain may be opposite under different conditions. And in a moment I'll show you this and I'll go through the, the whole way to explain how this observation in animals lead to the final situation in which such brains do not exist at all. Not only that they are not typical of males or typical of females, they, actually no one has such a brain. And what's typical of human brains, men and women together, is that they have a mix, each a unique combination or what I call mosaic of connections that are typical of males and connections that are typical of females. So we will get to this. It, it's not supposed to be clear right now. This is where we're going to. So we'll get there, and I hope by then it will be clear. We'll get there in a few minutes. But let's start now with uh, the observation that effects of sex may be opposite under different conditions. And to demonstrate this general principle, I want to look closely on a single paper. And in this study, uh, conducted in the lab of Tracy Shores, they looked at the density of, of uh, dendritic spines. So what we see here is a neuron. I'm sorry, there is a lot of wind here and everything is moving. So uh, this is a neuron. It was injected with green material. So it uh, also shows us this, the dendrites that extends from the body of the cell. And you can see that along the dendrites, there are small uh, red dots. So these are the, the dendritic spines. And here we can see a piece of dendrite from a male rat and a piece of dendrite from a female rat. And you can see the small red, uh, the arrows pointing on the, on the spines. So the, in a, a minute before there was the small red dots, now we see them without, without the coloring. And you can easily see that there is a sex difference. So the male mice have fewer spines compared to the female mice. It's not a clitoris and a, and a penis, but it's a very clear sex difference in the brain. So the first thing that I want to say here is that there is evidence, this study, but also other studies, showing that sex-related variables, sex-related hormones, sex-related genes, affect brain structure and function. This is one of these studies, and there are other studies. Usually when we hear that sex affects the brain, we immediately continue to conclude that there must be male and female brains. And this is because we are using the logic of the genitalia to understand sex effects on the brain. What I will try to do today is disconnect the two parts. So yes, there is lots of evidence that sex-related factors affect brain structure. But as I will show you, this does not necessarily mean that there are male and female brains. And the reason is that sex effects on the brain may be opposite under different conditions. So back to this study. In this study, there was another group of rats, and these rats underwent 30 minutes of stress one day before their brains were assessed. And again, we see a sex difference, but it is reversed. What we thought was typical of males, few spines, 
we now see in the stressed female. What we thought was typical of females, we now see in the stressed males. It would be the same as if I was going to a lecture and stuck in traffic and really you know, worried that I'll be late, lots of stress, but finally I will get there on time. This is usually what happens to me. I will get there on time. I will even have a few minutes before the start of the event, so I'll have time to go to the toilets. We'll take off my pants and say, my penis is back. Now, hopefully you are smiling now. And the reason that you are smiling is that this never happens, regardless of how stressful I am, how stressed my mother was, <clears throat> sorry, when she was carrying me. Uh, nothing will change for of my genitalia from female to male or the form of a male genitalia from male to female. You need specific chirurgical methods, etc., to change these. But in the brain, this happens a lot. <clears throat> and I'll show you in a minute. I just want to stay with this slide for one more minute because this is a very important slide. If you understand what's going on here, you are halfway to understand why brains are mosaics. And what we can see here is first, sex affects the brain, but how it affects the brain depends on other factors. And these interactions determine the endpoint of each of us brains. And the other thing you can say is that yes, sex affects the brain, but knowing the sex category of a subject does not allow you to predict how the brain will look. So if, for example, I'll tell you that you are going to look at the dendrite of a male rat, you will not be able to predict whether this rat will have few spines or lots of spines. To predict this, you also need to know the stress history of the rat. And of course, this never happens with genitalia, right? If I told you that you're going to look on the genitalia of a male rat, you immediately know what to expect, and this is what you'll find. Okay, so as I said, such interactions between sex and other factors have been demonstrated for many regions of the brain, for many characteristics of the brain. We just saw dendritic morphology. I'll show you in a second effects on receptor density. There are also similar studies showing similar effects on the size of specific nuclei, on the density of neurons in specific regions, and also following many different manipulations. We just saw the effects of acute stress, 30 minutes of stress. I'll show you the effects of chronic stress. There are also studies showing such reversal of sex effects happening already in utero, because, for example, the mother was stressed during pregnancy. Even housing rats, one to a cage or four to a cage, can reverse some sex differences in the rat cortex. Okay, so many studies like this showing this. And when you look at all these studies, as I have done over 10 years ago, what you realize is that these environmental events do not flip the entire brain from the female form to the male form or vice versa. Rather, they change the form of only some features. So even if I assume that at some specific point, let's say now, my entire brain is in the female typical form, then following such a manipulation or event, some of my feature, features will change the form, others will not, and I will end up with a mosaic brain. Mosaic in terms of having both female typical and male typical features. If we were talking about genitalia, we would call it an intersex brain, but I'm not using this term. Intersex activists have asked me not to use this term, so I'm using, I'm using instead mosaic. And because this is, again, such an important principle, I want to show you or illustrate this looking at a single study which demonstrates this general principle. So again, study in rats. 
this time from a different group, for Margaret M. McCarthy's group, and they looked at the density of cannabinoid receptors in the hippocampus. This is why the, you see here the, the leaf. And what we see here is the density of cannabinoid receptors. This is one kind of cannabinoid receptors, CB1. So you can see that the density of the receptors is higher in males compared to females in both the dorsal part of the hippocampus and the ventral part of the hippocampus. Now, again, there was another a group of rats in this study, and they underwent uh, three weeks of chronic stress. And in the dorsal hippocampus, again, we see a reversal of sex differences. So what we thought was typical of males having a high density of receptors, we now see in the, in the stressed females. What we thought was typical of females, we now see in the stressed males. But in the ventral hippocampus, hippocampus something else is happening. The males, again, change from, if you want, the male form to the female form, but the females do not change. What this means is that if we look, for example, at a rat colony, and the rats are living there quietly, no one is disturbing them, so they are not under stress. In such a colony, what would be typical of the males is to have high levels of receptors in the two regions of the hippocampus. And what would be typical of females is to have low density of receptors. However, in this colony, there may be some rats, males and females, that are housed with, a, with another rat which is very dominant and is making their lives miserable. So although most of the rats in the colony live peacefully, these rats are under a lot of stress. And if now we look at these few stressed male mice, what we'll see, or, uh, or rats, what we'll see is that their hippocampus is in the female typical form. Right? because they have low density of receptors in both uh, regions of the hippocampus, like the females do in this colony. However, if we look at the stressed females, we'll see that they have a mosaic brain, because uh, this region of the hippocampus is in the male typical form. This is why it's blue, but this region is in the female typical form. So their brain is a mosaic of a male typical and a female typical feature. Now, this study looked at a single feature of the brain, density of CB1 receptors in only two regions of the brain, and following a single manipulation, three weeks of stress. Take this study and multiply it by the enormous complexity of the brain, of the rat brain and for sure of the human brain, with the many different types of neurons, receptors, and neurotransmitters, etc. And then multiply again but the enormous complexity of the environment from the moment we uh, were conceived in our uh, mother's uh, womb to the minute we are sitting here and giving or listening to this talk. And you can understand when you take this complexity of the environment and of the brain into account, you can understand why it doesn't make much sense that brains will be internally consistent, having all the features in the male typical or the female typical form and it's much more uh, expected that most brain will be a mosaic. So this was the mosaic hypothesis I formed back in 2011. And a few years later, I understood how we can test it in the human brain. And this is a study I'm going to tell you about next. So this study was conducted together with Professor Yaniva Saf, who is an expert from Tel Aviv University in um, brain imaging of the human brain in imaging of the human brain, and a group of students who worked with us. 
And what we did all together, we analyzed the structure of over 1,400 human brains. And we analyzed gray matter and white matter and connectivity. Whatever you can measure, we analyzed. I'm not going to show you all of it. It is published. You can read it. What I'm going to show you is only one study, just to demonstrate again the general principle. In this study, we looked at MRI images. I'm sure you're familiar with this. And we divided each brain into 116 regions of gray matter. So just for those who are less familiar with the brain, we can divide the brains into uh, gray matter, where the neurons reside, and white matter, where the connections between the neurons reside. In this analysis, we looked only at gray matter. We measured the volume of each region, and we wrote it down in a table. In this table, each line is the volume of a, each line, sorry, is, is the brain of a single person, the 116 volumes of all these regions. To appreciate similarities and differences between the brains of women and men, we colored each cell using a green, green white, um, yellow color code. How did we do this? So we painted a cell green if it was large relative, or if the volume of this region was large in this brain relative to this region in all other brains, men and women combined. And we painted the cell yellow if it was relatively, if the volume was relatively small compared to the volume of this region in all other brains, again, men and women combined. Okay, so green, if it's relatively large, yellow, if it's relatively small. When we were done going over the entire table, this is what we saw. Men, brains of men on the right, on the left, brains of women on the right. There were more uh, men, uh, more women in the study. This is why they have more lines. Each line is a single brain. Remember, 116 volumes colored with a green-yellow color code. You don't need statistics to see the group-level differences between men and women. There is more green at the women's side, more yellow at the men's side. This is a known difference when you use the method of uh, measuring the brain that we, we have used. Uh, and it shows that women, on average, have more gray matter compared to men. Um, so this is known, and it's not new, and this is what you can see here, that women have more green. Remember, green is larger. But what you can also see is that the brains are almost never all green or all yellow. Instead, each brain is a unique mosaic, unique combination of green, which is more common in women, and yellow, which is more common in men. So just to, to say it in a different way. The question is not whether there are sex differences in the human brain. Here you can see in your eyes sex differences or gender differences in the human brain. Usually when we hear that there are differences between the brains of men and women, we immediately continue to conclude that there must be male brains and female brains. I really love this image because it helps you see both the group level differences between the brains of men and women, but also that these do not add up consistently to create create male and female brains. They do not create green and yellow brains. So the question is not whether there are differences. Also, I'm not interested in the question of nature versus nurture, that is, how did these differences got into the brain, but only in whether they add up to create two types of brains, female and male, as is the case in the genitalia, and as all scientists believe, implicitly believe, that is happening in the brain, and this illustrate this, or do these differences mix in each brain to create these mosaics as the mosaic hypothesis postulate, and as we saw a minute before, 
in uh, a minute ago in the uh, uh, brain of a rat. And I think that when you look at these images, it is clear that brains do not come in two types the way genitalia do. In fact, when I look at these images, and I was surprised by what we found, by what we found, I'm, I was looking at this and I thought, it seems that we all belong to a single highly heterogeneous population of brains in which what's typical of the human brain, males and females alike, is to have this mosaic of features. And in subsequent studies, and I'm again not going to go into the details, but those of you who are interested are welcome to read. In subsequent studies, what we showed is that indeed the brain types that are typical of women are also typical of men and vice versa. And that knowing whether someone is male or female in the genitalia gives you no information or very little information about the structure of this person's brain and about how similar or different they would be uh, from someone else's brain. So the chances that a male and a female will have a similar uh, brain type or brain architecture are very similar to the chances that two men or two males and two females will have a similar brain architecture. Yet in other words, the fact that I have female genitalia does not make my brain more similar to the brain of women in this crowd than to the brain of men in this crowd. Another thing that uh, I want to use this image to, to demonstrate or illustrate or stress is that in the binary framework with which we started, we, the, the main question is, are the brains of women and men the same or different? And this is always the question. Are men and women the same or different? These are the two options. However, when you look at these or our results on these images, you see that there is a third option. And the third option is that we are all different. No two brains are the same. You can see here, no two lines are the same. And what we further showed is that sex category provides very little information on how we are different or similar. Okay, so this is what I have to say about the brain. And I hope you can now understand what I said in the beginning. And I can uh, remind you, the study of connectivity with the blue brains at the top and the orange brains uh, on the bottom, we tested or analyzed also connectivity information, as they did in their study. And we couldn't find brains that had only male-typical or only female-typical connections. Most of the brains had both male-typical and female-typical connections. Of course, each brain a different mosaic. So if I go back to this general scheme, and we see that even though most humans have male or female genitalia, when it comes to the brain, we all have mosaics brain, we can then ask, what about gender? other men and women. And we can use the same logic that we did for the brain. So we know that there are differences between females and males in cognition, personality, behavior, interests, etc. These differences, most of them, are much smaller than we usually think, but we can, we can measure them and some differences are larger, for example, in sexual preferences, etc. Again, I'm not going to talk at all about the question of nature versus nurture. If you want, we can talk about this in the Q&A. Uh, but I only want to ask, do these differences, for whatever reason uh, they are there, do they dif these differences add up to create two types of humans, men and women, as sex differences in the genitalia do? And to answer this, we looked at the preferences, attitudes, and behaviors of over, well, now over 10,000 people already. And again, I'm going to show you only one analysis of a single sample. And in each data set, what we did is 
look at the differences or at the variables showing the largest gender differences. So for example, in this sample, there were seven large differences or relatively large differences uh, in communication, in self-esteem, etc. For each variable showing a large gender difference, we defined a feminine side and a masculine side. So just to give you an example, so for example, if someone was really high in self-esteem, this was considered masculine, and the cell in the uh, table was colored in blue. Why was this considered uh, masculine? Because in this sample, and this we find a lot, men were higher on self-esteem on average than women. If someone really worried about their weight, then it was considered feminine and painted in pink. Why? Because in this sample, and also in other samples, women worried more about their weight than men. And just a comment, uh, often when we find differences in reality between men and women, they match some stereotypes. The reverse is not always true, so not each stereotype is backed by data. But when we do find differences, usually they correspond with some stereotype of men and women. Okay, so we look at the seven variables and we color them with this pink-blue scale, and what did we find? We see men on the left, women on the right. Here, each line is only seven characteristics of a person. And again, you can easily see the gender differences. There is more blue at the men's side, more pink at the women's side. This must be this way because this is how we define what's masculine and what's feminine. Another thing that you can see here is that there is quite a lot of pink in the blue and quite a lot of blue in the pink. And this is because for any psychological variable, that we know of, there is some overlap between men and women, or between, between males and females. So some men will be feminine in this variable and some women will be masculine. But this was all known, wasn't interesting for us. What we wanted to know is whether humans are blue or pink. And as you can see here, there was no even a single person that had only these seven characteristics in the feminine or in the masculine uh, uh, type. Instead, most individuals here had a combination, each a unique combination of feminine and masculine characteristics. So also, only, also when we look at gender, we can see that humans do not come in two types. They do come in two types in terms of their genitalia, but they do not come in two types in terms of their gender characteristics. And we, have, we are almost, we are about to launch a website uh, in which people can explore their own gender mosaic using the gender mosaic questionnaire. And I hope it will be up and active within two weeks. And I, I hope the, the link could be sent to you or add, added in some way uh, to the link of the talk on the internet. So you can do it if you are interested. But just, you know, two weeks you can write gender mosaic and you'll find it. So the gender mosaic questionnaire, what it has, it has about 40 questions on attitudes, behaviors and preferences. For example, how much would you like to be a custom designer? And choose an answer between zero, strongly dislike, to six, strongly like. And please remember your answer because I'll be coming back to it in a few minutes. So there are many questions like this. And once uh, the participants complete the questionnaire, they get a feedback on how feminine or masculine they are in each trait compared to people around the world. So how do we determine what's masculine and what's feminine? And especially around the world, it can be different because cultures different in how, what they consider as masculine or feminine. So let me explain how we determine this. 
So let's look at the answers of 1,500 Americans to the questions you just answered. How much would you like to be a costume designer? And the answers of men are shown in blue and of women in red. And you can see that more men than women answered, uh, chose answers 0, 1, and 2. So these answers are considered masculine. And if you, you chose 0, 1, or 2, then your, uh, the corresponding square in your mosaic would be blue or light blue. In contrast, contrast answers 4, 5, and 6 were more common among women than among men. So choosing one of these answers would be considered feminine and marked in red or pink. Answer three was chosen by a similar number of men and women. So it is not feminine and nor masculine. It is gender neutral and it would be marked in yellow. Now what will happen if, if instead of comparing your answer to the results or to the answers of the American sample, we compare it to the answers of 1,500 people from South Korea? You can see that there are hardly any differences between men and women in this sample in how much they would like to be a costume designer, making all answers gender neutral. So regardless of how much you would like to be a costume designer, your square, the corresponding square in your mosaic, would be yellow. And here you can see my mosaic when my answers are compared to the USA, to the American sample. On some traits, I'm feminine or slightly feminine, on others, I'm masculine or slightly masculine, and on still others, I'm gender neutral. And you can see how my mosaic changes when my answers are compared to an Israeli sample and to a sample from Japan. Remember, my answers to the questionnaire have not changed. What has changed is whether they are considered masculine, feminine, or gender neutral in each country. Now, of course, I'm not the only person that have a mosaic. As I've shown you in a minute ago, we all have mosaics. And there are several interesting questions regarding these mosaics. One is, why do we perceive humans as men and women when in fact each of us is a mosaic? Why, do I, why when I look around at people, I see men and women and I don't see the individual mosaic each of us is? So we can discuss this question at the Q&A if you are interested in. Another, uh, and just in one sentence, the answer is that we see men and women and not individual mosaics because the distinction between female and male in our culture is so central to every aspect of our society. And again, we can discuss this later in more detail. And it is this social binary system, which we call gender, which is actually self-perpetuating itself. Because as we've seen, brains are not binary, our psychological characteristics are not binary, but still the gender binary is maintained. And we can ask, how come it is maintained? Why doesn't it dissolve of itself. And uh, again, we published a paper a year ago about this, so we can discuss this later if you want, or you can read it. But here I just want to emphasize one point, and this is what, where we started. A central part of the ability of this gender binary circle to self-perpetuate is that it relies on a biological essentialist binary view of gender. And this is the idea that there are male brains and female brains. So there is something essentially different about males and females that penetrates every aspect of their existence. It penetrates the brain and the mind. Okay? So this idea is very central. And it's nothing from new. So the myth of the male and female brain is as old as modern science. 
when modern science begins, so did the myth of the male and female brain. Before that, religious was uh, responsible for giving us stories to uh, explain social order, including the lower status of women compared to men. So think, for example, of the myth of Adam and Eve and how Eve was created from Adam's uh, rib, etc. So, but back to science. So already in the 17th century, scientists were start, uh, trying to explain the lower status or the inferior status of females compared to males in human societies. And they looked at the, the brain, not really the brain, the skull. They couldn't measure the brain back then, but they did know it's important for intelligence and other factors. So they looked at the skulls. And when they looked at the skulls, it seems that it's very easy to explain the uh, inferior status of females because men, on average, had larger skulls compared to women. So now we understand why women are intellectually inferior to men. There was only one problem with this explanation, though, and that there are many animals, or not so many, but enough animals, that have a much larger skull than humans do. For example, whales, elephants, etc. So there was a problem. The scientists that wanted to explain male superiority didn't want to explain uh, elephant superiority over humans. So they had a problem. But they easily solved it in looking, instead of the absolute size of the skull, looking at the relative size of the skull compared to the size of the entire body. And when you do this, humans, I think this is still true, humans have the largest skull-to-body ratio. We can, you know, finally we have an explanation that will keep humans as the center of uh, creation. But there was a problem with this explanation. Because when they got back to humans, they found out that females actually have a larger skull-to-body uh, ratio than men. Well, again, a problem, right? So if you thought for a minute that when they discovered this, they said, oh, our whole society is wrong. We Women are superior intellectually, and we should change the structure of society, and you know, women should be the leaders, men should stay at home, raise children, etc. But this didn't happen. Instead, what they uh, managed to do is look at children. And when you look at children, children have a larger skull-to-body uh, ratio than adults. So they said, now they had a new theory, and the theory goes, humans start with a relatively large skull-to-body ratio, as, but as they mature, as they develop, then the ratio uh, decreases. And females get stuck in the middle, so they don't finish the development as males do. So again, we have a, a, an explanation to why women are inferior to men. The, the reason I'm talking about this at length is that when we look at myths of other times or of other cultures, it is really easy to detect them as myths. And, and they, you know, they are, they are funny or they are annoying, but they are myths. It's very clear. But when we uh, look at the stories that we are told now, this looks like real stuff to us. We, it's harder to detect it as a myth. So let's jump 200 years to the 19th century when they were starting to study the brain. And again, this, they found, and, and this is still true, that male brains are larger uh, than female brains on average. And, and this is actually the, almost the largest difference between the brains of uh, human males and females the, in the total brain volume. And some scientists use this finding to explain why women can't go to university. Well, they weren't allowed to go to university, but now they had a scientific reason. And they said that it's dangerous for them because the brain is too small, it may uh, lead to damage, 
some other scientists thought that if uh, the blood will go to the brain of the female, then it will not go to the, her reproductive organs and with, uh, will disrupt her fertility. So they had very good reasons why not to send women to universities. Now, again, nowadays, to think that women cannot go to universities because of the smaller brain sounds ridiculous when women actually outnumber men in, in university, in the BA, MA, and even PhD levels. Uh, but back then, seemed like a, a good explanation, and I want to stress that nothing changes in regard to the brain. Women's brains are still smaller than men's brains, but this is not the reason why they didn't go back then to university and not why they are doing well now in the university. And if we jump to our century, then the study that I showed you at the beginning is the same, exact same narrative, only the techniques change. So now they can measure connectivity, etc. But the but the narrative, the idea that there are male brains and female brains, and that these explain differences that we see around us. So look here. So uh, women's brains are suited to social skills and memory. Men's, men's brains are suited to perception and coordination. So again, the same story, just more, you know, up to date. So let me summarize and we can go to, the, uh, to a short break and then I'm happy to come back with, for questions and answers, hopefully. So we started with this binary framework, uh, according to which we start from a small difference. The genitalia are created in two types, and so does our brain. And this leads to the emergence of two types of humans in terms of every aspect of human existence, men and women. What I showed you is that whereas this is quite an accurate description of the development of the genitalia, it has nothing to do with the development of brain and mind, if you want. Uh, whereas in the genitalia, intersex is very rare. In the brain, we are all mosaics of male-typical and female-typical features. And so this is also the case when we look at psychological characteristics. And I discussed, for, and, and I want to remind you, because some of you will ask this, I want to remind you that the fact that we are mosaic is a, a direct, also a direct consequence of how sex affects the brain. Remember, the mosaic idea comes from animal studies, no gender, sex. From animal studies are showing that the effects of sex-related variables can be opposite under different conditions. So this is where it all, it all comes from. And we also discussed shortly the gender binary cycle. So I want to end here and to thank you. And I hope to meet you in 15 minutes or whenever uh, Mati tells us to uh, come back. are back again. I hope everyone has settled comfortably. Unfortunately, I'm lacking the Scottish accent that would make it permissible for people like Brian Ego to ask a question whether you're all done finishing the content of your underwear now, but I'll refrain to that. I just can't pull it off. So following Daphne's great talk, we will now have a look at your questions. But first, just a little bit more housekeeping. I want to advertise our community features. Um, we have got a Discord server. And we've got our online pub, the Logins Razor, which will open after the talk today. So uh, details for both the pub and the Discord server will show up in the chat again. And uh, the one thing I want to remind you is we also open our online pub on the Thursdays when we don't have a talk. So we'll open it normally at 8.30 UK time. Join us if you're free, if you're bored, if you want to talk to some people, we're, you're always welcome. Now, let's talk about the questions. The very first question we have, and that has got the most votes, 
is from Anonymous. He asks, or she asks, or they ask, don't want to insult anybody. Why do you think so many people irrationally oppose anything that even implies anything more than a strict male-female distinction? <clears throat> well, I think the, the gender binary is such an essential part of human society and has been for many years. So, and I think people are afraid of change. Um, you know, the, the sex binary or the gender binary organizes the world. There are things for males, things for females. Everyone knows their place. Uh, this place is better for some people, not, not as good to others. Uh, so I think this is the reason. But I think that when you look at the gender binary, and I didn't have time to touch upon this, but the gender binary is harmful for almost everyone. And we are very aware of the harms that the gender binary does for women and for girls. But I, you know, I'm really uh, very disturbed by the harms it does also to boys and men. And boys and men pay many prices for the gender binary, but because they also, uh, you know, get out of these things, that we, we pay less attention to this. But mm. boys actually are, are much more gendered than girls at an early age. Girls are started to be gendered, at least in Western societies, usually around adolescence. So a girl, you know, she can wear skirts and she can wear trousers. She can play ball and she can play with dolls. She can do everything. But a, a little boy can't. Can't wear skirts. He can't play with dolls. So he, he's gendered in a much more aggressive way from a very young age. So I think we are all paying prices for being gendered, for being squeezed into these two boxes. And I think we should all fight the gender binary. Okay. Um, there have been repeated requests to actually define the, the term gender. Um, can you give us a definition? Yeah. So, so gender is, is a, a term that is constantly changing. So if we go to the 70s, when the distinction between sex and gender became more popular, then gender relate to, the, to what we would call today femininity and masculinity. So the attributes, psychological attributes, behaviors, etc., that are considered appropriate to males and females in a certain society or that are more prevalent in males and females in a certain society. So one aspect of gender is what we may call today gender roles. Mm -hmm. Another is gender identity. So this is uh, something that uh, have been, scientists have been talking about since the 50s with the work of, uh, of money, etc., and also, the, what's gender identity? This also has changed and has changed tremendously in the past decade or two. So the way we understand and think about gender identity now is very different from how we did, or I wasn't there, but how they did in the 50s or 60s. Uh, so there is another concept. The way I use gender is as a social system. So not as just a set of um, uh, attributes or psychological attributes, but as, as a gender, uh, gender as a social system that attributes different roles, different power, etc., to males and females. And uh, this is a system that governs many aspects of human relations. So also our, our understanding of ourselves, the interactions between humans according to the form of their genitalia, the uh, organization of social institutions like families, it's also part of the gender binary. So uh, the way, so I use it both to talk about the fact that personally, none of us has gender in the sense of being a man or a woman because we each have a, a mosaic of gendered characteristics, but also gender as a social system that divides the world into things for males and things for females. 
Okay, so I hope this is clearer now. And this is, it is the gender system, the binary gender system that I think is harming all of us. Because at the individual level, none of us belongs to one of these boxes. Okay, good. Actually, just following up on this, um, let's see. We have a question here also from uh, anonymous uh, sender. Um, he, he or she asks, what is the effect, of, effect on brain development of the widely different ways boys and girls are nurtured, raised, educated from birth? How early do those differences manifest? So it, it, it's a good question, but it's a question that we can't really answer. And it touches on the question of nature versus nurture. So for sure, the environment affects our brain. This is the whole idea of brain plasticity, of our ability to learn. This is the, our brain constantly changes in response to the environment. And of course, if we treat people differently and we give them different toys and etc., then this will affect their brain. But how exactly it affects the brain? Again, there are complex interactions. So I think what, for me, one of the things that are surprising in the finding that we all have a mosaic of characteristics is that even though sex-related factors affect the brain and we have gender as a social system that treats differently humans with male and female genitalia, even though we still have these mosaic brains, because you could have expected that there would be male and female brains just because of the gender of the environment, but we don't see this. Okay, so it's not a one-to-one -one, uh, procedure, but clearly if someone only play uh, football and another one never play football, but only play with dolls, they will develop different abilities, different capabilities, and the, there would be some differences in their brains too. Okay. Okay, let's see, what, do, what else do we have? Um, we have a question from somebody who calls himself skeptical fella, and he asks, have there been studies, for example, of neurological differences between trans, asexual, and gender fluid people, and those who identify with the gender assigned at birth? Yeah, so, yes, there have been studies, I think mainly of transgender as compared to cisgender. I, I am not familiar, but maybe there are of studies of non-binary, etc. But there have been several studies of comparing transgender and cisgender. Mm -hmm. um, and these studies find differences uh, between the brains of cisgender and transgender. Some are in the direction of expected. So the trans individual is more similar to the gender with which they um, um, uh, identify. Uh, some are not in the expected direction in this sense. And also there is huge variability. And uh, we weren't able to analyze uh, this data because we haven't done this kind of studies. I'll say in a minute what we have done. But uh, because of the large variability in both the cisgender and transgender group, what I expect is that if we go back to the individual level, we will see that each individual has a combination, a mosaic of trans features and cis features. Okay, mm. so there is not trans brain and a cis brain. And what we have done, maybe some of you are familiar with the work of Dick Swab, and uh, he and his group analyzed post-mortem data from the brains of cisgender individuals and transgender individuals. And then they found some of the largest known differences in the human brain in specific regions of the hypothalamus. And, we, and together with Dick Swab, we reanalyzed their data. And what we found is that also in these specific regions, many people have a mosaic of characteristics. So these are the largest known differences between men and women in the human brain. And even there we can see uh, mosaic brains. And this was also true for trans women. 
So if we go back again to the idea that we can detect differences between the brains of men and women, and, but each brain is a mosaic, so I guess based on our analysis and on the large variability we see in uh, MRI studies of trans individuals, that this will also be true of trans individuals. They also have a mosaic brain because humans have a mosaic brain and trans, like everyone else, is human and so will be non-binary, etc. So humans have a mosaic brain and our study shows that this is also true for trans and I guess once uh, someone analyzes MRI data, they will find this there too. Okay, good. Um, that was one question I had when you were giving your talk. Um, for those research, uh, for the research that you presented, it seems that in all those cases, those were basically people who self-identified as cisgender, male or female. In the studies, I think most in most studies, the options are to tick a box saying male or female, and okay. no one asks you if you are trans or not. So okay. the way people identify this is how they were grouped into the study. Okay, thank you for highlighting that. Good. Um, let's see. What what is the next question? Um, Nadia asks: um, Have you been confronted by any religious or political political groups because of your research? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> okay. Do you expect it? Yeah. Actually, in the beginning, I was really uh, worried that uh, it will be. I will get um, strong reactions from also from people, not just from religious or activists, etc. And I was surprised that I wasn't. Actually, mm -hmm. our study, especially the study from 2015, got very warm welcome. It was cited all over the world and featured in media all over the world. And always with, you know, people were happy even to, to hear about it. And I gave it some thought. And what I think is special about the mosaic hypothesis in comparison to other feminist uh, alternative to the binary is that the usual criticism of the male-female brain hypothesis or myth was that there is overlap between the brains of males and females in every feature that we measure. And more generally, that there is a lot of similarities between men and women. But most people, when they hear someone telling them that men and women are the same, they don't buy it. Because they look around and we see so many differences, right? You go to the playing yard and you see the boys playing some games and the girls playing other games. So it's really difficult mm. to tell people that men and women or boys or girls are the same. Now, the mosaic framework doesn't try to convince you that everyone is the same. And as I said before, the, even the question of are boys and girls the same or different, this is part of the binary thinking. This is a wrong question. This is not the question. But anyway, the mosaic builds on the observation that there are differences. It cannot be a mosaic of male-typical and female-typical features if there are no differences, right? And mm. so the mosaic, on the one hand, goes with people's understanding of the world as there are group-level differences between men and women. But then the mosaic adds something that also people know about themselves because everyone knows, everyone can name a few feminine and a few masculine characteristics of themselves. What I add is only that everyone is like this. And I think actually it's a relief because, you know, if I am, you know, I'm feminine, I, I'm a, I am a woman and I'm worried that my masculine parts are too strong or, you know, maybe they get objections, etc. But then I hear that everyone has masculine and feminine characteristics. Maybe I'm relieved. I don't think that something is wrong with me. I don't think that I have to hide my non-typical characteristic, etc. So I think the reason that the mosaic framework or the hypothesis is actually more easily accepted, this is the way I experience it up until now, is because it doesn't confront 
people's, people's understanding of gender. Mm-hmm. It just adds something that they already knew. But if you really understand the mosaic, then it dissolves the gender binary. Yeah. So, okay, so yes, you can still understand why you see more boys playing ball and more girls reading a story, but you understand the mosaic and you, and, and you, you will no longer say, boys take a ball, go play outside, girls come listen to a story, because you understand that in this, you assume that kids come in two types, and you already know that they don't come in two types, they come in many types. Yeah. Okay? That's true. Okay, good. Next question. Um, another anonymous question. What, if anything... Does your research say about those who say they are transgender? Bearing in mind, transgenderism is not correlated with DSDs. Not sure what DSDs are. Disorders of sex development or differences in sex development intersex. Yeah, okay. I know what DSDs are. Yeah. Okay, so, so first, uh, by definition, until at least uh, DSM-5, uh, transgender wasn't part of, if you were intersex, you cannot get a diagnosis of transgender. So the, the, these were completely uh, different. I have no idea why some people are transgender and some t- people are cisgender. My feminist vision is of a world without gender, in which our, whether we have male, female or intersex genitalia would carry no social meaning. And I have no clue whether in a world without gender, there will still be transgender. I don't know. Maybe they would and maybe they wouldn't. I, I have no clue. I am not transgender, so I cannot imagine how it is, but I can imagine a world without gender. Uh, and no one knows why some people identify one way or the other. It's an interesting question. It's also, as I said before, gender identity is a concept that it is, is evolving. So if yeah. in the 50s it was strongly directed to the sense of oneself as male or female, th- this is not lo- no longer the case. And Many transgender individuals, not all, but many transgender individuals, it's not about their body, and not, they don't necessarily want to change their body. So it, it's something different. And I am not sure that we really know what it is now, but it is changing, it is evolving, and science is behind uh, in what is happening you know, uh, outside. Food for thought. Never looked at it that way. Good. Let's see. What do we have? Paul, also known as Pictacule, is asking... Other than posting a link to your book in toxic Twitter threads, how would you suggest we can best combat anti-trans misinformation? Well, posting a, a link to my book would be much appreciated. Um, but um, yes, I, I know, and it's especially true in the UK. It's like it's a, it's, it's it's a war, and it's really frightening, and it's very toxic, and and it doesn't allow open discussion of things that should be discussed. And, and I don't have a, you know, I don't know what you can do, uh, but except for educating people on the one hand. And on the other hand, I think for me, the most important thing, and I think it will give a relief to many, many people, trans and non-trans, is mm-hmm. to fight the gender binary. I think this is the main problem. We need to fight the gender binary. We need to fight the idea that if you have male, female, or intersex genitalia, you must be this way or the other way. We should get rid of the gender binary. It is causing so much pain and problems. Uh, and I think this is the main thing, for, at least for me, this is the main thing I'm trying to do. Good. Now, we have a question from Annoying Mouse. Is the rise in transgenderism or gender dysphoria possibly due to increased stress in our societies? I don't know. As I said before, no one knows why... Uh, I think mainly now it's a social change. I don't think now there is more stress 
compared to 100 years ago, so especially not in some regions of the world. But in Scandinavian uh, countries, there is a rise in transgenderism. Are they specifically stressed? They are not more stressed than in Israel, I'm sure, or in the Gaza Strip or whatever. So, you know, yeah, people are more stressed than in Europe uh, and they don't have so much transgenderism. Okay. So um, you mentioned during your talk that the whole subject of nature versus nurture is something you would have a lot to say about. So Nadia asks you to just do that. So what, what is your perspective on the discussion of nature versus nurture? I think we are obsessed with the question of nature versus nurture because of the myth of the male and female brain. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason, and, but let me say one thing before. First, we cannot really answer the question uh, scientifically, the question of nature versus nurture. And I, and I hinted at this in my previous answer. So we know, we, we have a lot of evidence that nurture affects the brain. This is easy. We have lots of evidence. We have uh, differences between cultures. We have differences throughout history in what's feminine and what's masculine. So surely nurture affects gender differences. Now we are left with the question whether nature has an effect on gender differences. And this is a difficult question to answer. Babies, when they are born, there are hardly any differences on the group level between male and female babies. Most of the differences emerge later when there are two or three. This is also true for the brain. In the brain, there are hardly any differences except for the uh, size, the difference in, in total brain volume. Uh, and most of the differences emerge during adolescence. Now, the fact that differences emerge later in life doesn't mean that they are the result of nurture or no, and not nature. Okay, take, for example, mm -hmm. breast development. There is no difference in babies in the form of their chest. The, the difference arises only during adolescence, but we wouldn't say that this means that this is a nurture difference and not a nature difference. So the fact that the differences uh, arise later doesn't prove that it is not nature, but it is more difficult to show. And so we cannot disentangle the effects of nature and nurture. So this is, so we cannot answer this question. But I'm more concerned with why we are obsessed with this question. Let's say that the nature story were true. Let's say that, mm -hmm. for example, testosterone, if you were exposed to high levels of testosterone in the womb, you are more likely to be aggressive. Okay, let's say this were true. There is not good evidence for this, but let's say it were true. Then what are we to do with this information? Should we now give men and boys a license to kill? Surely <laughs> not, right? No. So if we knew that testosterone was causing or increasing the tendency for violence, what I think we should do is just treat people with this tendency and, you know, give them all the tools not to be violent. Why? Because violence in our society is something that we are not supposed to do. Or alternatively, if violence is something we appreciate, appreciate, then we should give those with low levels of violence all the tools to increase their violence. And if this sounds weird to you, just think of were we to discover a genetic mutation that leads kids or causes kids uh, to have difficulties in acquiring reading and writing skills. What should we do with this information? Which is the same as the testosterone and aggression. Should we just screen the kids preschool and those with the mutation will just say, ah, forget it, don't go to school, just go, you know, be whatever, something that doesn't need writing and reading. Obviously we wouldn't, right? Because we think that yeah. writing and reading is essential in our society. So we will give these kids extra training so they will be able to overcome the inherent uh, problem. But with sex, it's the opposite. 
instead of saying, okay, maybe it's sex that is causing this uh, problem, but how do we overcome this? We use it to celebrate the differences. Let boys be boys. We never say, let cancer be cancer. I mean, think of this. Entire medicine is to fight nature. We don't celebrate that someone, someone got uh, cancer and we say, ah, finally nature got you. We don't do this, okay? But when it comes to sex, then we celebrate nature. Culture is the opposite of nature, always. Humans are aggressive by nature. Forget about sex. Humans are aggressive by nature. Most animals are. But we don't celebrate aggression. We don't say, because humans are uh, aggressive by nature, then let's cancel prisons. We don't need police. You know, let's just human, be, humans be humans. So the same with sex. People are obsessed with this question because they want to justify the current social order. Not because they want to understand something about the world and not because they want to make mm. the world a better place. Okay. Huh. Good. Let's see. What's, what's our next question? Um, we've got a question from Devon Cat who asks, what is the most plausible objection to your research findings? And do you have a response to it? Yes, of course. <laughs> so th there is... Uh, this is a little complex to, to explain. So the main uh, reaction to, my, uh, to, my, to our findings and to the mosaic hypothesis was um, that maybe this is true, but you can use brain structure to predict whether someone is male or female with accuracy. Well, it depends. But it, can get, it can be very high if you don't correct for brain volume, but if you do, it's around like 60-something percent, 70 percent, which is better than chance, which is 50 not very good, but better than chance. So the, I call it the new formulation of the binary myth is this prediction that I can look at your brain and say whether you are male or female with, let's say, 70% chance to be correct. Now, first, this is not really the problem usually, right? Because I know someone's sex. I don't need to look at their brain to predict what sex categories they are. Usually, the interesting question is the opposite. I know someone is female or male, and what I can say about their brain. So our studies show, and other studies show, that very, very little you can say about the brain. And so I published several papers in response to this idea of prediction, but this is the main objection. And the reason I'm thinking is that it's very technical to go into this, but the mm -hmm. problem is it really shows how the binary framework is so strong that instead of people saying, okay, we understand sex category doesn't explain a lot of variability of human brain structure and function, let's look mm -hmm. at what does explain this variability. Instead, they really clinch to every little piece of evidence that there are some differences, and it diverts money and efforts uh, from the really important things to study about the human brain. Uh, so this is the main problem with this criticism. But it's a very small group of scientists that object. Most scientists really uh, took this idea in. Uh, it is often cited, so many, many papers you can see that brains are uh, mosaics of uh, male typical, female typical. They don't even give me credit for the idea. It's like, yeah, it's a truism. Uh, we always thought this way. So it's funny how things work. Okay. Unfortunately, I just jumped the gun with my last question. Uh, there was another question going back to the stereotypes. Um, Cleo asked, put in the question, are gender stereotypes different in different cultures? Well, obviously, uh, I didn't study this it, this way, but uh, we, have, we have now uh, looked at uh, the gender mosaic questionnaire, the results from 
the USA, UK, Japan, South Korea, and Israel, and mm-hmm. we'll soon have some more countries, and we see differences between the, the countries. So, in, for example, in some uh, differences that we see in the USA, for example, in job preferences, we don't see in Japan, and, and vice versa. One interesting uh, difference is in the wish to be an inventor. There is quite a large uh, gender difference in the UK in, in the USA, with men wanting to be an inventor more than women, but not in Israel. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah. so, yeah, so it, yes, there, there are differences. We are studying it now. And of course, I'm sure others have studied it. Okay. Um, now we've got the question that during the review earlier, you said you didn't know exactly what to make of it, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, Anonymous again asks you to explain why stereotypes have got nothing to do with gender and how it works, as a lot of people seem to get this confused. So I'm not sure I got this question right, and if whoever asked it, if they want to write it in the, uh, to explain in the chat, uh, and we have time to go back to it, I, I'd be happy. I think it has to do with gender identity and gender. For me, mm-hmm. gender, as I explained it before, as masculinity, femininity, and also as a social system, Actually, it builds on stereotypes. And what is considered feminine and what is considered masculine is not random. It's not something like, ah, yeah, let's put power here and empathy here. No, the stereotypes and what's considered feminine and masculine serve the power relations between men and women, which is gender as a social system. So for me, gender stereotypes are part of gender. I think the question was relating to gender identity. And this Mm -hmm. is something else. So... Uh, there is no relation between how we identify, or the, it's a question whether kids are influenced by gender stereotypes when they develop their own gender identity, which we know very little about how it develops in everyone, cisgender, transgender, non-binary kids. Okay, we got another question this time from Igor. He asks, can your mosaic theory, mosaic theory uh, be considered part of intersectionality? Mm, interesting. Yeah, in a way, you can think of this <laughs> in some way. I mean, the mosaic is caused by interactions between sex and other factors. So in this sense, you know, when we look at a person, there are the result of the intersection of many uh, positions they have in life. So sex, or age, or ethnicity, etc., etc. So you could look at this this way. It wouldn't be the first thing that I would, you know, think of. Okay. Um, let's see. Next question is, uh, again, from Anonymous. Um, are there a small number of common combinations of gendered human brain difference that would explain a substantial proportion of people? Or is it more scattered than, than that? From subsequent, not what I showed you, but from subsequent studies, um, it depends how you, well, depends on the method. It's, Human brains result, reside in a high-dimension space. And how best to describe this space is, is not easy. So it depends on the method that you use. If you use clustering, then you don't need ma- many clusters to describe well human variability. So, you know, so, so it would say that there are a few general architectures. But if you look at, with different methods, you get another answer. So... So for me, one of the interesting questions for me right now is how best to describe variability in the human brain and how to study uh, or how to, yeah, how to describe the human brain once we get rid of the binary. So what is it? Uh, and we're still working on this, so I don't want to, to, say, to, to give an answer. Okay. 
No, that's fine. Okay, um, let's see. Do we have another question here? Um, it's actually our usual question. I think I'll use it as the final question today. And it's the, the simple question. Do you have any pets we can see? But there is a, a little modification to the usual questions. Preferably not stressed or hooked up to monitors. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. I no longer do animal studies. So my, my only subjects are humans. And I try not to stress them. But uh, I, I'm now in the UK in a sabbatical. But uh, I live in Israel. And in Israel, I have two dogs, but they are not here with me. There's another family Obviously. taking care of them. Yeah. Good. Well, it's a shame. Maybe another time. But thank you very much. I hope that Q&A was interesting for you guys out there. Um, okay. That concludes tonight's events. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.